Anthony Gowdy was born in 1852 in Catalonia in northeastern Spain, and he is famous for his strange, colourful, fantastic-looking buildings. And I thought we'd look at some of them now. Uh, so if we could have the first slide, please. Look at this. Uh, this is a house called uh, Casa Mila. And look how it, 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 it almost seems as if it's been kind of carved out of a single piece of rock, whereas in fact it is built of uh, stone and bricks like any other building. Could we have the next slide, please? Uh, this one is called Casa Batlo, and I think is also extraordinary, but in a different way. Look at, those, um, look at these, these structures in the middle of the image. This is just some windows on the side of the house. They almost look like bones for an animal. And then, uh, but it, but it's, not, it's not sort of grim, because it's actually a very cheerful structure with these beautiful bits of glass, look like the bottom of wine bottles, and then these lovely, colourful details on the top. Can we have the next slide, please? Uh, the next image is of a, a public park in Barcelona called Park Guell. And this, I think, is, it, it's almost mad. It looks like somebody's taken children's pottery and kind of smashed it up and made this, this colourful wall around the edge of this structure. Um, just so vibrant and in, and in, the, in the heart of a, um, a living, breathing city. Now, those of you who are familiar with this man's work may know that his most famous structure is on our next slide, uh, which is the Cathedral of the Sagrada Familia, so the, the sacred family, the family of Jesus. Um, Gaudi, who designed this amazing building, he died in 1926. Uh, but as you can see from the cranes in that image, this cathedral is still under construction. And if you go to the website, uh, it estimates that that cathedral in Barcelona will be finished in 2026, so 100 years after the architect died. While he was alive, so again, over 100 years before the end of the project, we think, Gaudi was asked when the cathedral would be finished. Now, this was a work that he was doing for God, and so because he was both a Christian and also apparently something of a wit, he answered, my client isn't in a hurry. Now, Gaudi is just one example of, uh, and we can go to a blank screen now, thank you so much. He's just one example in a long list of people whose great achievements were not realized until after they had died. The Augustinian friar Gregor Mendel, now recognized as the father of genetics, published his work on what he called dominant and recessive factors, what you and I call genes, in 1866. But the huge ramifications of what he had discovered weren't really grasped until the 20th century. And going back even further for another example, it is, a, it is one of the most striking features of the Exodus narrative that Moses leads his people out of slavery and goes on many adventures and sees many wondrous things, but he never lives to see the promised land. Now, all of these people were part of something bigger than themselves, whether they knew it or not, and they were the forebears of great and wondrous things that happened through them. 
And that is what our psalm today is about. So we have in front of us a psalm in two parts. The first part is uh, verses 1 and 2, just like it's laid out in the print copy in front of you. And the second part is verses uh, 3, 4, and 5. Now, let's look, at, let's look at both parts in order, and then let's look at the two of them together. They are both parts, or the, or the whole psalm is about this theme that we've already spoken about. So all of the psalm is about this great journey through the generations. It's a song that takes us from the earthly realities of toil on a building, on a city, up towards the blessings of a glorious future. And so in that sense, it's about this quite disturbing and mysterious question of how we leave something behind after our labors in this life are finished and about the, the mystery of our relationship with those who come after us. But even though these are quite kind of foreboding questions, the to- I, hope, I hope it's already clear that the tone of the psalm is joyful, so the questions are answered with hope. And in that way, it really is a song of ascent, because it's a journey upwards, uh, up the holy mountain, but a journey not measured in hours or even days, but in generations. Let's go into the text then. We start with that first section, verses one and two. The starting point is very small, very local, very focused. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Then, zooming out slightly, unless the Lord watches over the city, so multiple houses, the guards stand watch in vain. And then the psalm makes a general assertion. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Now, if that's a bit tricky to understand, um, it might be helpful for me to say that an alternative translation of that verse is that God looks after those he loves while they are sleeping, or even though they are sleeping. And that is potentially more accessible because the point there is that labor and toil can all be for nothing and that favor lands where God wishes it to land, even if the recipient of that favor doesn't necessarily deserve it. So perhaps bear that in mind and see if that rings true when we've been through the rest of the the psalm. Now, I've said that it's going to be part of of a great journey, but I've also said that we should take Uh, the two halves of the psalm as they come. So let's dwell for a moment on the specific meaning of just this first half of the psalm. It will be better understood as part of the whole, but there's no denying that these two verses, there's something about them that has great kind of poetic resonance, right? Uh, Even the people of the city of Edinburgh chose this verse, verse 1, as the motto of their city. So in its Latin form, nisi dominus frustra, unless the Lord does it, it is in vain. And just taking on its own terms, this is a wise saying. We live in a world that's dominated by technique. So you must learn this skill, or you must get this qualification, or you must implement these policies and procedures. And if you do all of those things, things will turn out well for you. And I think there's relatively little room in our cultural imagination 
for the notion that uh, try as you might, with all of the right processes and procedures, all the right skills and qualifications, you still might not succeed. In fact, you won't succeed unless you align yourself with a divine will that rules the universe. And similarly, there's no room for the opposite, or little room for the opposite, which is that even if you don't work at it properly, if you don't have the skill and you don't have the right policies and procedures, God's blessings might still be bestowed upon you. And so the result of lacking that imagination is that the cultural temperature can tend towards either pride, that is, glorying in the skill and achievements of mankind, brilliant though they might be, but glorying in those, reveling in those, or towards despair. So we're all going to die from climate change, there's nothing we can do about it, that kind of attitude. The solution that the psalmist hints at, and that we as Christians can fully realise, fully work out in light of the New Testament, is that a central characteristic of God, a fundamental aspect of his character, is grace. As most perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ, of course. So it is good to work hard and to commit yourself to your work but we must never be so prideful as to assume that if we enjoy blessings, those are purely the result of our work and not gifts from our Father in heaven. Nor indeed must we be so despondent as to believe that if we fail in our efforts, if we fail to apply ourselves properly, then that means it will end in complete failure for us. Neither of those things is true. Our good gifts come from our Father and he will hold us in his, in his hand. He will not let us fail, ultimately. Let's give him thanks for both of those things. Now, we've recently, as a church family, been looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, which also deals with this theme of vanity and also points us towards this conclusion that a proper regard for the holiness of God and his character is the only kind of true solution out of, out of this quandary. And there's a particularly apposite passage from the book of Ecclesiastes that I wanted to share with you. Uh, but in doing so, I'm going to use a trick that's used by George Orwell who, to make a point about uh, poetry and language. He did what he called translated the passage from the original uh, King, James, King James English into what he called modern English of the worst sort. So I'm going to give you the passage in Orwell and see if you can think of what passage it might be from the book of Ecclesiastes. Here's the translation. Objective consideration of contemporary phenomena compels the conclusion that success or failure in competitive activities exhibits no tendency to be commensurate with innate capacity but that a considerable element of the unpredictable must invariably be taken into account. Really snappy. Of course, you will all have recognised that the original is uh, Ecclesiastes 9.11. And here, here it is, just to bring us back to something that actually sounds good. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, 
nor yet favour to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. And much better, right? Now, why do I use that all well uh, comparison? It's, it's to make a point about the power of poetry. To the passage from Ecclesiastes, the real one, not the translated one, was the first Bible passage I ever memorized. But it was because of Orwell, because he demonstrated to me how profoundly beautiful and moving it is. And the result is that that passage has stayed with me and I've wrestled with it and it's changed me and shaped me over many years because my thought life for decades has been part of it at least, has been a constant struggle against the part of me that says that happiness can only come through intense effort and toil and discipline. But I also recognise that that passage can be a bit of a mouthful. And so the passage that we have here today is um, perhaps a little bit more digestible, a little bit more memorisable. And, of course, beloved of the people of Edinburgh, as I've said, Nizzi Dominus Frustra. Unless the Lord builds the house, the labourers labour in vain. So my encouragement to you is to memorise this poetry, recite it to yourself um, when you're at work or looking after your loved ones or you're reaching the end of your tether. Unless the Lord builds the house, the labourers labour in vain. It's pithy, it's beautiful, and it's no accident that it's given to us in poetry, in song. So let's enjoy the musicality and the memorability of it uh, and make these words to live by. So that is the first half. We come now to the second half, and that will cast the first half in a new light. So I don't want to detract from what I've said about the, uh, about the wisdom and the charm of the first half, uh, but the psalm is doing more than just unfolding wisdom that can be found in Ecclesiastes. It's, it's doing that really well, but it's doing more. And it does that by moving from the house and the city to the family. Now, of course, this isn't such a completely unexpected move. In English, we use the word house to mean family when we say the house of Windsor or the house of the dragon. That's what that means. So we'll come back in a minute to seeing how this reframes the first half. But once again, let's look at the second half in isolation and see what, um, what wisdom and power it has for us. So just the second half. First we have this. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Offspring a reward from him. Then verse 4, we have this kind of amplification that children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So effective and potent, but perhaps not without danger if they're pointed in the wrong direction. And then finally, we have, again, maybe a slightly more inaccessible uh, or slightly more uh, veiled uh, remark about what happens in court. Now, just to clarify this point, I can tell you from professional experience that having children does not stop you from having a bad day in court. There's some free legal advice for you. But what the psalmist is saying here is a bit broader than that. It's helpful to know that the Hebrew word uh, that's, being, that's being translated court there 
is gates. And that's the place in the city, in the kind of traditional layout of the, of the time, where people would gather for public business and decision making. So the thrust of the verse is that children have some kind of impact in the community. Let's come back to that. But that's our kind of overview of the second half of the psalm. So it's about children. Now, this is a huge topic. And it's not one that I claim to be specially qualified to speak about. I'm a father of two, um, which makes me considerably less experienced than some members of our church family uh, to speak about parenthood. Uh, and my children are also very little, which means that I don't know what it's like to be, for example, the parent of a teenage child or, a, or, or an adult. I'm also very aware that the relationship of child and parent can be uniquely painful and confusing. The, the, the parent-child relationship goes all the way to the bottom of the soul. God himself is father and son. So I do speak here with caution and with respect for the fact that all of us, I think, have complex feelings about our parents and our children as appropriate. I also think I need to explain what I actually mean by parents. Of, of course I mean biological parents. I also mean adoptive parents, and I mean foster parents, and I mean aunts and uncles and grandparents and friends who act as parents and caregivers. And I also mean everyone in this church who would care for and guide someone younger than them. And that is not simply a fine sentiment. It's a profoundly Christian attitude and an important theological truth. We're all bound together here as brothers and sisters because, John 1.12 tells us, God has called us to be his children. And Jesus himself said in Matthew 19.14, let the little children come to me. So gathering children is a divine act. It's what God himself does. And, and he doesn't do it in the biological sense. He does it in a spiritual sense by sending Jesus to become sin for us and to be destroyed. He, he makes us his children. And so there's a sense in which, in which, as a spiritual community, we should not think of our children merely as our literal offspring, but also as our, as our spiritual children. That is, anybody who is nurtured and cared for and raised by this community, anybody who becomes a child of God through evangelism, through your discipleship. So spiritual children are highly significant in this context. And can I therefore say to you, if you are here as an adult who would love to have children, but you consider that you don't have children, it is possible that to somebody, in fact, you already are a parent and that you perform a profoundly important role in this church family as effectively a spiritual father or mother to somebody. And indeed, you can become one still as you pass on your faith, your kindness, your wisdom, your care to a new generation. And so with that introduction... I'd like to address three groups of people specifically about 
uh, children of parents, although for the reasons I've given, I hope that actually most of this applies to most of us. So even if you don't think you're in the constituency that I'm addressing, still listen in, because there'll be something for you. So parents, uh, let's notice a couple of things about our children from these verses. First thing to notice is that they are from the Lord. So they are, in, in, in one sense, not, not ours. They're precious people, and they are entrusted to us. And ours is the solemn responsibility to bring them up, but they are not ours to do with as we please. So let's guide them and help them, yes, but let's not demand that they do what pleases us. And perhaps that means we should be less concerned with making sure that they meet our aspirations for them, less concerned with whether they make us look or feel good, and more concerned that they pursue paths of righteousness, even when that causes them hardships or takes them far from home. The second thing to notice is that they are an inheritance and a reward. So they are a gift. And when they're trying their luck, when they're difficult, when we're arguing with them, let's try to remember that. They're a gift. And it can be genuinely very hard to believe that when you're having a fight about why they're not allowed to have a pet or why they have to be home by 10 p.m. or you're five hours into a 10-hour flight with a two-year-old. Not that I'm sore about that. But children are an inheritance, so they will, God willing, look after us when we are old, and they are our best hope of transmitting the values that we hold dear to future generations. Our, our raising them is the only way we know of fulfilling that duty we have to sustain our community and pass on the faith that we have received. And that, by the way, I think is why this verse 5 about the court and the gates, remember that, that bit, makes sense. A person who takes responsibility for children is not put to shame at the city gates because such a person is one who shoulders the responsibility of caring for and educating those who will preserve the city in years to come. And more significantly, God himself, who is the one with countless children, he will not be put to shame because the gates of hell will not come against the church because Christ is risen from the dead and because his is the final victory. And so that also means that as we engage in this holy work of preserving the city in years to come, we know the outcome is secured, that the holy mountain will be summited even if we don't know exactly when. Now I'd like to say something to those who are thinking about whether they might become parents. I, myself, really struggled with this um, several years ago, and I found um, the decision about whether to become a parent to be profoundly unsettling and difficult. But I can tell you honestly that um, deciding to have children has been one of the best decisions I have ever made. 
So what I want to say to you is, based on not only my experience, but also, more importantly, the authority of this psalm and what God wants us to know about having children, please don't be afraid. I think it's very common to hear things like, or I hear a lot of things like, I don't know if I would bring a child into this world, or I don't know if I'm cut out for, for parenthood. And of course, of course, there are plenty of people for whom it is not right uh, to have children. And that can be for a variety of, uh, of reasons and a result of many different circumstances. Illness, uh, a sense of calling to a particular vocation, all kinds of other reasons. Jesus himself was single. Paul was single. Paul commended singleness to others. But if, if, as many people are, you're contemplating marriage, you're contemplating children, can I please implore you not to listen to some of what the world tells us about this topic? Because I think basically what you hear is that children tear a hole in your social life, break your marriage, and put your career on hold. But having children is not about those things. It's not about those things. Of course it involves putting in the hard yards. I know that. I can confirm it. But children are a gift. They are an inheritance. And actually, I think they can have a very positive effect on things like your social life and your marriage and your career. Maybe we could talk about that after the service. But the vital point that the psalmist wants us to know is that having them is about playing your part in building the city and going on that journey up the holy mountain. Elon Musk thinks that one of the greatest threats facing humanity is uh, population collapse. As people have fewer and fewer children and there's no one left to care for the elderly, an incredibly important and, and sacred task, or to preserve nations or communities. Uh, Peter Zihan, who is a, a, a political commentator you may have come across, says that China is in what he calls the advanced stages of demographic collapse. And some projections have China's population falling to about half of what it is now by the end of the century. Japan's population has fallen by about 800,000 in the course of this year alone. Now, there are complex reasons for these things, and not all of those reasons are bad. However, these facts do raise serious questions about how cultures, traditions, ideas, and nations are going to survive, and in what form. Obviously, we can't resolve those questions now, clearly. But I suggest that as Christians, we have special reason to believe that we have something worth preserving, the gospel of grace and the gift of eternal life through Jesus. And that we also have special reason to believe that our children will lift the burdens of the world and not add to them. The work of the Holy Spirit in their lives and the power of the gospel going out on their lips. So if you think that you might want to have children, then please can I say to you, do so. It is a hard, hard thing, but it is sacred and profound and transformative. 
And please let me be clear again that I'm not necessarily talking about biological children. I would say the same of foster children, of adopted children, if you are called to do that, and of the spiritual children that you raise in community with others. You can be a parent by blood, but you can also be a parent spiritually and by your actions. You can count everyone as your children who benefits from the guidance and love that you give. So do that too, do that divine act. Seek out children who need you and gather them to you and be a parent to them. And finally, can I say something just to everyone? I think we're, all, we're still at the stage where everybody in the room um, has a parent. So we're not at the stage where people have been um, grown in laboratory environments. Now, that may actually not be true in the future, in which case there'll be some interesting questions to answer, but I think we all have uh, parents of some description. And can I therefore suggest that this passage about children is actually about all of us, that we are our parents' inheritance? Of course, if we're God's children, that also means that we are God's inheritance which is a, a strange and startling prospect. But it does appear to be true. And I say that not to make us feel important, but to make us remember we have a huge impact on our parents' lives. We have extraordinary influence over them, their emotions, their relationships, and in later years, maybe even their health, finances, and their physical surroundings. So let's not forget that. Let's remember that we pick up the torch from them. Let us be gentle and kind and respectful to our parents. Let us remember that one of the reasons we're here today is because they went through all kinds of trouble for us, and their parents did that for them, and their parents did that for them, back for a thousand generations. Let's try to live up to the notion that we are a means of God's kindness to our parents on earth, to live up to the notion that we are an inheritance for God, we are God's inheritance. Let's be, therefore, the best people that we can be, first for the Lord, our Father in heaven, but also for our parents here on earth, whether or not they seem to appreciate it. Now, I did promise that we would try and stand back and see the both parts of the psalm together. I hope it's not too hard to see now that the house at the beginning of the psalm is just the first in a sequence of images that tell the story of what the Lord is doing. He's building a house for himself, a temple, a holy city, a new Jerusalem. And we see that from the book of Revelation. He's also building a new family made up of brothers and sisters, children of God. And he does that supremely through the work of Christ who gives all the chance to become children of God and make them heirs with himself. So, as I've already alluded to, these tasks of building a house, of building a city, of building a family, these are all divine tasks. These are tasks that God himself undertakes. Now, that gives tremendous dignity to our endeavours because it tells us that our labours be they physical or political or familial. These are labors that follow God's pattern for us. He does it first and we follow. 
But it also lifts the burden from us because it tells us that these are not tasks that it's for us to perfect. The psalmist could see that clearly enough, but we can see it more clearly still from this side of the cross. These tasks have been perfected in Christ crucified and risen from the dead because the temple of the Holy Spirit is built in each of our bodies, because the holy city is promised to arrive in the new creation, and the family of God is already a reality as we here together meet at this time of worship. And all of those works will be finally perfected at the end of time, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and all things are made new. So let that be a comfort to you. He has approved what we have started and he will see it done. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are the author and perfecter of our faith and of our life's journey. We thank you that you go before us, that you build the house, that you will build a new Jerusalem, that you will be the author of the new creation. And we praise you, Father, that we are on this journey to that new creation together as a family, as your children called to you. And so we ask, Father, that that would give us a sense of dignity in our endeavours, that that would show us the way, that would show us the pattern for our lives. And we pray that it will also lift the burden from us as we trust that you will ultimately perfect those tasks, that you will bring us home, and that you will meet us there atop the holy mountain. Amen.